Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Exodus. We're continuing our study in the Ten Commandments. We're in the Third Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and as I do, I'm going to pray for a church called You Flourish. It's a church that Highland supports, and actually today is their grand opening. It's a multi-ethnic church in Milwaukee, and uh, good brothers, Kurt and Ronaldo, pastor it. They've been online for a while. Today is the day they open their doors to the public. So let's uh, turn to the Lord and pray. Father God, we just sang about your name, and we're going to study about your name. Your many names, actually. Speak to us, encourage our hearts, challenge us to think of your names as representative of your persona. Father, as we gather, we think of sisters and brothers who will gather at You Flourish Church today in Milwaukee. We think of Kurt and Ronaldo as they minister to some people they know and some they do not. Father, they desire a multi-ethnic church in the midst of a multi-ethnic neighborhood. And we ask, Father, that you would do mighty things in this congregation for that community, that many would come to know your son as Savior and Lord. And guide Kurt and Ronaldo today as they lead and bring just those individuals you desire to you Flourish Church this morning. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, we ask. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Dr. Howard Bennett, in an address to the AMA, the American Medical Association, shared some humorous observations that he made about his association. He discovered that 20 doctors had the last name of needle or probe. Probably not the one you want as your general practitioner. He also discovered 15 MDs with the last name of drill. I guess it could be worse. It could be your dentist, Dr. Drill. He found 20 with the last name of heel. That's pretty good. I'll take that doc. That doc is going to help bring healing. Unfortunately, he found 15 docs whose last name was Klutz or Croak. <laughs> How would you like your surgeon to be named Dr. Croak? That might be a little disconcerting. He found one poor doctor whose last name was Kevorkian, who promised that he was not the Kevorkian from Michigan, that was not who he is. Now, I'm sure all of these docs are outstanding, probably worthy of us coming to them. But we hear the name, and it gives us pause 
because names bring forth emotive reactions from us. I want to illustrate this with my own name. You know me as Jeff Hines, but actually my first name is Douglas, Douglas Jeffrey Hines. So when my mom got really frustrated with me, both times, <laughs> she called me Douglas. She always calls me Jeffrey, but my dad's name is Douglas. And so when she got mad at me, she called me Douglas. Not sure what that says about my dad. When my dad got frustrated with me, he used all three names. Douglas Jeffrey Hines. He kind of thought that sounded ominous. We got that reasoning. So we gave all our names or all our kids four names. If three sounds ominous, four sounds even more so, right? But the truth is I never used all four names. When I would get frustrated, I would just go through names. Isaiah, I mean Hannah, no Sandy, Snickers, our dog, Kalina. And the more names I went through, it kind of spoke to where my gray matter is, but also my level of frustration. Our daughter, Sandy, and her husband, Ryan, they kind of followed suit because the middle names we gave to our kids were the names of our parents or our grandparents. They followed suit. So Ray Ray is actually Ray Lynn Ann. Betty Ann is my wife's name. And her other grandmother also has Ann as the middle name. So they got a two for one. Our four-month-old is Ronan Jeffrey. <laughs> Ronan Jeffrey. You know, I think Ronan is kind of a forgettable first name. So feel free just to call him Jeffrey. <laughs> Names mean something. Names matter. We often choose names based on what they mean or how they sound or after a favorite person like the favorite grandfather or something like that. Names mean something. They always have. And so today in the third commandment, we are commanded not to misuse or abuse the name or names of God. Let me read that third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, before you and I look at Exodus 20, I want to illustrate the principle in the New Testament. We're going to illustrate it out of Acts 19. And if you're familiar with the account in Acts 19, we're in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And we have some charlatans. We have some wannabes who are trying to make bank by actually praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, praying on those who are afflicted with demons or afflicted with illnesses. And so what's going on is something like this. Maybe a person has suffered for many months with a, an affliction, a disease, and they can't get cured. Or maybe someone has a demon that is bothering them or has demonized them. And so what happens is they would go 
to these individuals, these charlatans, they would pay an exorbitant fee and the charlatan would do some kind of incantation and the check would be cashed and a few hours later, the afflicted person would realize they weren't cured. The demonized would realize the demon was still afflicting them. And so they'd go back and the charlatan would essentially say, look, if you had faith, then it would have taken. But obviously, I did what was right. You lack faith, so I can't help you. Now, that's a problem in ancient Israel, as it has been from time to time in the United States as well. Because we have some charlatan faith healers who, for exorbitant fees, will bring some kind of affliction and cast it out, but it's not really that way. It's kind of a slight in hand. It's a, it's a dog and pony show. And then they blame the individual who is not healed for the lack that they are not healed. Well, if you know the account, we have seven charlatans. They're actually the seven sons of a high priest, or at least a chief priest, named Sceva. We'll call them the charlatan seven. And they've been claiming to cast out demons. They've been claiming to remove sicknesses and afflictions for some time. Probably nothing authentic has ever happened, but they're making bank off of it. And then Paul moves into town. And Paul really does, empowered by God's spirit, bring healing. Paul really does, empowered by God's spirit, cast out demons. Let me read just a little bit of the text. I'm in Acts 19. I'll read verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. And the sick had disease that left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Incredible. Miracles were being done in the name of the Lord. Now the charlatan seven, they've observed Paul. They don't understand what's going on. We know that Paul can't really heal. Paul can't really cast out unless God's spirit works through Paul. So we know the real source is the power of God, not the power of Paul. But they can't figure that out and they're kind of observing Paul. And the common denominator, whenever Paul acts is he does it in the name of Jesus. And so they think to themselves, maybe this is the key. This is the way to really make bank. I'll cast out demons. I'll heal the afflicted in the name of Jesus. And so as time goes on, somebody who really is demonized comes to them. And in the name of Jesus, they seek to cast out the demon. And you remember what the text says. The demon speaks to them. And the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I acknowledge, but who are you? You're using God's name, but you don't know God. You're using God's name in a vain fashion because you don't know who he is. You don't know what you're doing. And do you remember the next act? The demon beats them. They are beaten. The seven sons of Sceva are beaten by the demon. What happens? Well, it's actually the fulfillment of Exodus 27. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so in this case, God actually uses the demon to do his work because even the devil obeys the Lord and uses the demon to do his bidding. You remember the rest of the account. The people in Turkey are so moved. They've actually seen a work by God, a powerful work by God, that they're turning from their sin, repenting, confessing their sin. And then the next thing we have is a bunch of people who have engaged in the occult. They're bringing their books of horoscopes. They're bringing their books of zodiac. They're bringing their books of incantations. And they're putting them in a pile and they're setting it on fire. It's the first book burning in history that we know about. And 50,000 drachmas of silver go up in flames. A drachma is a day's worth of wages for an average worker. We have 50,000 days worth of work of the occult being destroyed because now they've seen the real thing. They've seen a work of God. What does the text say? Do not take the Lord's name in vain, for surely God will hold us not guiltless if we take his name in vain. We need to have the highest regard for the name or names. There's 300 of them. 300 names of God, each of which speak to a characteristic of who God is. I want to illustrate this out of Jewish history. The most learned people of their day were the scribes. The scribes were very educated, and they were charged with taking the ancient manuscripts and copying them. And then when they were done with an original, it was actually destroyed, so you had a new copy. And you remember how they would go letter by letter by letter, right to left, and when they were done with a book, let's say Genesis, 50 chapters, there's about eight chapters per, scry or per scroll, so maybe seven scrolls for the book of Genesis, and you'd count from the first letter to the middle, and if you got the wrong letter, they'd burn your work. Or they go from the last letter to the middle, and if you got the letter wrong, they burn your work and took an incredibly disciplined and learned individual. And that's how God transmitted his scriptures. Well, these individuals were so concerned with the name of God, especially the most sacred name, we pronounce it Yahweh, they would call it the tetra for grammaton in Greek, four-letter word. Almost every Hebrew word has three letters, three radicals, three consonants. You might have a prefix and a suffix which would give you more than three, but almost all have three. But this was the four-letter name of God. We pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah. So sacred was this name that originally all of Scripture didn't have vowels. And so you would read 
actually without spaces between letters, you would read the text and it got to the point where nobody could read it except the most scholarly. So the most scholarly, the Masoretes, actually put vowels in and started separating words for us. And when they came to the most sacred name, Yahweh, they chose not to put the right vowels in. They chose to put the vowels from Adonai, which gives us the word Jehovah. Adonai also means Lord. Yahweh means Lord. But they didn't want us to be able to pronounce it correctly, lest we mispronounce one of the sacred names of God. So to this day, we actually don't know how to pronounce Yahweh, which is the word scholars use, or in many texts they've given us Jehovah, but we don't really know how to pronounce it because they put the wrong vowels in, so we would not misuse the sacred name of God. And when the most pious of scribes would come to Yahweh, they would stop, they would pause, they would ceremonially bathe, or at least they would wash their hands. Then they would change their clothes, they would take out a new pen and write the Tetragrammaton the name Yahweh. Guess how many times Yahweh or a compound of Yahweh occurs in the 39 books? 6,800 times. And they would stop and they would pause and they would ceremonially bathe and close their garments and take out a fresh pen or at least consecrate the pen and then write the sacred name. Not only did they change the vowels so we couldn't pronounce it and write the letters with great reverence, but the ancient Jews essentially said, of this most sacred name of God, no person can ever pronounce it except the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was 10 days ago, September 15th. That's Leviticus 16, when there is sacrifice made to atone for the sins of the nation. Only then, on that day, the high priest one time can say the name Yahweh. Because they did not want us to abuse the most sacred name of God. That's R-E-S-P-E-C-T, channeling Aretha Franklin, right? That's respect. Jesus plays off this in Matthew 6, 9, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed's an old word. It just means to hold in the highest of reverence. Hold the name of God in the highest reverence. We see this all over Scripture. I think we've seen it so often in Scripture that we don't realize how often we read words that tell us to keep God's name holy. I'm just going to read a few from the Psalter, but we could really go to many books. Psalm 29.2, which actually is repeated verbatim in 96.8, it says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. 
Psalm 66.2. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Psalm 72.19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Psalm 103.1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You see, a name in the Old Testament also referred to not just what you call somebody, but who they are, their character, their personality. This is all over Scripture. Consider just the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In chapter 12, we meet Abram, which kind of means exalted father. But he looks at the sky and he sees the stars and God says, from you will come offspring that will number like the stars. So you are no longer Abram. You will be Abraham, father of many nations. And then in that same story, God says that you, Abram, and your wife, Sarai, are going to have a child. And they're kind of way past the childbearing years. And so he laughs. So what does he name his son? Yatsek. Isaac, which means laughter. Because it tickled his fancy. We are way, Lord, you might not have been counting the years up there. We're not going to have a child. And with God, all things are possible. And then Isaac's son is Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber or usurper. It's got dual meanings. And you remember that Jacob is a twin. And he's the second one out of the birth canal. And he's found grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. And later, he usurps the birthright of his brother. And the oldest son in the Old Testament gets a double portion of the inheritance. If there's two sons, the oldest son gets 66.6%. And the youngest son gets 33.3%. And somehow he swindles his brother. And so it's reflected in his name. This is all over scripture. I think of 1 Samuel 25. Here we have a man named Nabal. I don't know if we have any Nabals here today. I hope not. Well, I'm glad you're here. But I'm about to tell you that your name in the Old Testament means foolish one. So forgive me. But Nabal... Whether that's his name or not, that's the nomenclature attached to who he is. You remember he pokes the bear, right? So we have Nabal, who is a very wealthy man. He has lots of people working for him. And they're out in the fields. They're watching over the flock. And David has been appointed the next king. He's not yet on the throne, but everyone knows he's the next king. And he's out in the wilderness with 600 mighty men. And while he's out there, he kind of provides protection for all of Nabal's flocks, all of his men, and he doesn't ask for anything. Months go by. David falls a little bit on hard times. So he goes to Nabal and he says, hey, we've been providing protection. Could you give us some provisions? And the foolish one said, no. Now, remember, David has 600 mighty men. He's going to be the next king. He's been providing months of protection. And yet the foolish one said, no, Nabal reflects who he is. 
That's even true of Jesus. You think of when the angel comes to Mary and Joseph, and you remember that Mary has the power of the Holy Spirit come upon her, and the might of the Almighty overshadow her so that the child to be born will be called Holy, the Holy One of Israel. And the angel tells them to name him Jesus, which is the Greek version of Joshua in the Old Testament, which means salvation or Savior. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He's the Savior who through faith in him, knowing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, he went to the cross. He died as a payment of our sin. He conquered death. He rose again. That if by faith we would believe in Christ and receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. That's what his name means. In the Bible, over and over again, nomenclature reflects the character or life experience of the individual. And so we are told in the Ten Commandments, that's true of God. He has 300 names. They reflect who he is, his attributes, his characteristics. So don't be flippant with the names of God. So how do we apply this? I'm going to offer four thoughts. The first is probably the one you expected me to land on. And that's we've got to be careful not to use God's name in a frivolous or denigrating way. The word vain is lasa, and it literally means empty, worthless, denigrating, frivolous. And so when I say, oh my God, can you believe the sunset today? I'm not addressing the Lord. I'm not even talking about the Lord. That's a frivolous manner. Or I say, God, and I throw in a few invectives, that's a demeaning manner. Or oh, lordy, lordy. There's lots of ways we can use God's name invectively or as a filler. And that's vain. Lassa, frivolous, empty, meaningless, denigrating. So maybe this is new information for some of us. Well, today is a day to Agree with God, that's what confession is. And say, I misuse your name. And repent, that means to turn. Lord, empower me by your spirit to not use your name in an empty or frivolous or denigrating fashion. And we, over time, begin to retrain ourselves and how we use the sacred names of God. The text says that God will not hold us guiltless if we use his name in vain. This is a big deal. It made the top three of the top 10 for God. This is kind of a big deal. Second, vows. Sometimes we invoke the name of God in vows. Now, scripture's clear. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. For anything less comes from the evil one. We need to be women and men of the word. But when we invoke the name of God, we've kind of brought it to the next level. Listen to how Moses put it in Leviticus 19.12. He said, you shall not swear by my name falsely 
and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And you say, well, that's great, but Leviticus was like written 3,350 years ago. I don't know that anyone invokes the name of God anymore in vows. Maybe we do. Betty Ann and I did on June 6, 1987, when I, Jeff, take thee, Betty Ann, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, according to God's holy ordinance, I pledge to thee in marriage. What have I said? I said, before the Lord, I pledge to thee in marriage. If you've had any sort of traditional vow in your wedding, you probably invoke the name of God. This is just one of several reasons why whatever marriage you are in or will be in, if you're not yet married, you work at it, you invest in it, you pray for it, you make that marriage the priority. Yes, there are a couple concessions to an innocent spouse if one is married to someone who violates the marriage bond. There's adultery, Matthew 5 and 19. The innocent spouse is given a concession, a permissive concession to leave the marriage if somebody commits adultery. And it actually makes sense because you really shouldn't read Matthew 5 and 19 without 1 Corinthians 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her. What is marriage? Marriage is the oneness of a husband and wife. But if someone steps outside the marriage, they actually break the oneness and they create a new oneness. And so in that situation, God says that the innocent spouse permissively could leave the marriage. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says that if an unbeliever deserts the marriage, the believer is free. <laughs> what happens if a believer deserts the marriage? Well, two chapters earlier, Paul told us if a believer acts like an unbeliever, treat him like an unbeliever. So Paul already covered that. If somebody deserts the marriage, walks away, does not come back. Or I think that also applies to abuse. If somebody is abusive within the marriage, the innocent spouse is free. Other than that, we work at the marriage, we invest in the marriage, we pray for the marriage, we stay in the marriage. And even heightened if we invoked the name of God in the vows of our marriage. Third, the command you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain also includes attaching God's name to our purposes, ideas, or personal agendas. It sometimes happens. People say things like this. I was praying and the Lord told me to tell you. Hmm. I always wonder why the Lord doesn't just tell me has to tell you to tell me. But there are times when we can actually say with great confidence, the Lord has spoken, the Lord has said. Like I can say with great confidence, the Lord has said 
You, I, shall not lie. We shall not steal. We shall not covet. I can say that because I've got context. I've got book. I've got chapter. I've got verse. It's right in Scripture, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But there's other times when God speaks to our heart and impression. I think that can be quite valid, but it's something less than Scripture, and I've got to know that. God speaks objectively, but I subjectively interpret it. And sometimes I get the interpretation wrong. And so I want to be very careful when I say God says. I can say God says when I book chapter and verse in context. But when it's an impression, a feeling, even a confidence, but I don't have book, chapter, and verse, I need to water it down a little bit. I need to say something like, I think God is leading in this direction. Because there's a little less than certainty. The Bible alone is certain. The impressions, if I always got them right, they would be certain, but I don't because I'm a subjective being. I might illustrate it this way. I can say that Betty Ann and I are very confident that God led us to Highland in March of 2002. I could say that I think we have about 98% certainty that God led us here. This is where God wants us to be. It's been a blessing and we love being here. But I can't say with 100% certainty because I don't have book, chapter, and verse. And so when we invoke the name of God, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that if we're really invoking the name of God, we have the certainty of God. Finally, the positive side of the third commandment is worship. We want to worship this God who has revealed himself, his characteristics, his attributes, in over 300 names. And when we come across the names, we ought to think, what does this mean? What is God revealing about himself that I might worship him, that I might know him, that I might speak more accurately of him in all of his varied names? Who is this incredible God? This is the God, by the way, that someday every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It actually says prior to that, that everyone will bow. Everyone in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Everyone will confess. This is the God we serve. By the way, if you look at Philippians 2, 9 to 11, which is what I just cited, in English, you get the impression that the name that is above every name is Jesus. That's actually not what the text says. The name that is above every name is Jesus Christ is Lord. The implication actually is Lord, kurios. By the way, kurios is a Greek version of Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. That's the name above all names, the most sacred name. So when I say Lordy, Lordy, or somehow use God's sacred name invectively or frivolously. I'm using the name that someday everyone 
will bow before. Every good angel, fallen angel, every redeemed and unredeemed person will bow before this name, which represents this person who is above all. And so I want to remind myself when I come to the names of the Lord, they reflect who he is. They reflect who I want to tell others about. They tell me something of this great God. And I don't want to speak them in vain, la saw, which is vain, frivolous, empty, in a denigrative fashion. God is worth far more than that. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help us to hold you in the highest of regard, to recognize that your names represent who you are, your greatness, your attributes, your persona. Help us to tell others about you. Give us the reverence for you that the ancients have and let us understand that Reverence is less about what clothes we wear or whether we walk fast or run through the halls. But reverence is our attitude towards you and who you are. Give us great reverence for you are worthy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.